Our Lord, it is because you live that we do have hope. You who came, took on flesh, that you might redeem humanity, provide redemption, the forgiveness of sin for your people who were chosen in you before the foundation of the world by you, Father, to adopt a people to yourself, sons in the Son, that we might be rescued from the consequences of our sin and your divine wrath, your holy justice, that we might be raised up to new life, to the heights of heaven in our dear and blessed Savior. And our Lord, you are there now, physically, bodily, in a glory that we can only imagine, a glory we will one day see when you return in that glory with the holy angels. But you are there now for us. You have sent your spirit to teach us, to unite us to you. And Holy Spirit, you communicate to us the presence of our Savior and our God as we trust you and walk with you. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember these great and magnificent promises that we have access through Christ to the throne of grace and that that access would be our great joy and our great comfort as we walk in this world. Teach us now as we open your word. Let us hear you speak to us from heaven, as it were. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Although we're only going to use that as a launching point this morning, we'll be jumping around a little bit. In the beginning, uh, settle a bit more or settle more in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 next week. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. The reason we'll be bouncing around a bit more this morning is because I want to take a moment, well, a morning, as it were, and and back up and to set uh, with a bit more clarity, uh, a bit more comprehensiveness, the, the background of Ecclesiastes. It's been mentioned many times that the book of Ecclesiastes is grounded very securely and firmly and comprehensively, really, in Genesis 1 through 3, namely the account of creation and the account of the fall. And so we're living in Ecclesiastes with a very emotive sense and response and experience of what it's like to live in a world that's groaning, that's under the conditions of sin, under the conditions of Genesis chapter 3. Now while that is very clear for us through Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that many of us would say that's not necessarily clear if we were to look at the world and at Christianity at large. The doctrine of sin seems to be so emasculated and so minimized that we'd almost forget that it is the great burden that we bear as humanity, that it is the very reason that we need the gospel of Jesus Christ to set us free and to forgive us. The Savior is to many so unnecessary or small because the burden of our sin that he came to rescue us from is so small. There's a certain triviality about sin that we are confronted with in the church and therefore in our culture because who else is going to be the voice for the truth except the church, those who have believed Christ and who speak his word. If the church is weak on the doctrine of sin, then the culture and the world is going to be weak on the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of sin is directly related to our view of God. So sin is going to be about as serious as God is to us, holy and glorious. As a matter of fact, one said this, the chief effect of this era 
on the Christian church has been to trivialize sin and make holiness virtually incomprehensible to the younger generation, which can see the weakness of moralism but does not know what to put in its place. The word sin is also used nowadays in relation to rich foods and dieting. Now, that was sinfully good. Although the only connection to the Christian idea of sin is that both threaten undesirable consequences. That we have descended to this in popular culture is a warning to the church that the modern world no longer understands the concept of sin or sinfulness and that in turn means that it no longer understands the true meaning of the gospel. It is hard not to think that for all the talk about new life in Christ that is heard in the churches today, there is little real grappling with the deeper issues of sin and little awareness of what that really is. In large, sin is put in therapeutic terms. It's brokenness. It's failure. It's weakness. It's an illness. It's a sickness. It's an addiction. Not to say that in a right context those words couldn't be used, but that is the sum total of the church's message, it seems, in popular culture of what sin is. All of those make sin, first of all, known only in its consequences to us, not in its offense to God, and largely make sin something that we are a victim of rather than a committer of. And so it lessens the idea of sin. It eliminates the idea of moral treason and culpability before God and the humbling weight of having offended and disobeying him. Or some reframe sin in the, in the church at large and its devastating effects almost entirely in terms of simply the harm that it brings to us. The great tragedy of Genesis 3 is that it's brought sadness and hurt into the world. The great tragedy of the fall of man in the garden is it has ruined our felicity. It's ruined our hope. It's ruined our purpose, which is completely man-centered and does not follow the narrative of sin entering into the world and then there's murder. Sin entering into the world and in less than three chapters, it's destroyed by water. So sin is the issue. In short, the church has largely lost a proper and biblical view of sin because it has a diminished view of God, a God who exists for us and for our happiness rather than us existing for him and for his glory, which is our happiness. But we have to get it right and in the right order. Now, by contrast, as I mentioned, Ecclesiastes causes us to face the reality of sin of a creation under its bondage and under its burden. It is honest about the suffering that, he, that sin brings to humanity. It's offering about the real experience of sadness and discouragement and all of those things that sin brings into humanity, but not in a way that makes humanity the center, in a way that keeps God and his rule and our accountability to him at center stage where it belongs. We read this earlier, but Ecclesiastes 7, 9 reminded us that God created man upright. That's Genesis 1 and 2. But he has sought out many devices. That's Genesis 3 to the end. In chapter 9, verse 3, which is where we'll be spending more time next week, he says this, There is an evil that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all men. That's death. Again, that's Genesis 3. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives and afterwards they go to the dead. 
And so that's what I want to just stop and camp on for a moment. It's a theme that we run across in many ways throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as we've gone through. But I want to stop and just back up and give a bigger picture of the theology of sin and salvation. As I mentioned, Solomon brings us to face this reality that we are in a world that is not as it should be, that is not as God designed it to be, is not as it will be in that glorious future of eternity, but it's the world we live in now that's awaiting its redemption. And so we're going to pull the car over for just a bit to step back and consider the big picture of sin and salvation. And we're going to do this under three uh, general headings. Uh, that is sin's character, sin's consequence, and sin's conquest. I finally found something where three C's would work together. I get excited when I can do that. It just came out of nowhere. But anyway, it's sin's character. What is sin? Sin's consequence, what has come into the world because of sin? And sin's conquest, that is God's overcoming sin on our behalf in Christ. Now, now the, the point again, I, I know I probably say this uh, too much, but here it goes again. Uh, is that each of these are topics to be explored on their own, which we're obviously not going to do in the next few minutes that we have together. I want to give you a broad picture, though. I want to paint for you a big scope, the big idea of sin in all of those three different aspects for us to set for us a, a basic Christian worldview of sin and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the goal and the intention this morning. So let's begin by considering this, the character of sin. The character of sin. What is the character of sin? Sin is, in its character and at its heart, rebellion against God. Rebellion is the idea of sin. It's rebellion. First uh, John chapter 3 provides for us a simple statement that we know. Sometimes it's missed in its profundity. And he says this. Sin is, you could finish it, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, at first reading, that can almost sound a bit benign, kind of weak, like it doesn't really have a lot of teeth, like it's just not doing the law or just not doing what we're supposed to. However, it's far more profound than that. It is the realm of Satan. It is the realm of the work of the evil one that brought humanity into its ruin. Let's think of it this way, this definition that sin is lawlessness. Since God is the lawgiver, it is an expression of his will and his character. There is one lawgiver, scripture tells us, and that is God. Therefore, to not obey his law is an act of rebellion. It is a refusal to acknowledge his authority. It is a refusal to acknowledge his goodness. It is a refusal to acknowledge his rights over us as his image bearers. It is essentially thumbing our nose in the face of God and saying, I will live how I want to live, not how you tell me to live. I will define reality as I want to. So sin is not merely then not doing what we're told. It is a hostile refusal to acknowledge the rights of God over our life. This is why Paul himself in Romans 8 says and defines it actually in just that way. He says in verse 7, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. So lawlessness is not merely a, a failure or a weakness on our part. It is, in the eyes of God, hostility towards him. It's an enmity towards him. It is saying to the king, you are not my king. 
It is saying to the creator, you are not the one who rules my life. So sin is lawlessness. We as his image bearers were made to reflect his character and his glory, to live consistent with that glory, to worship him as our ultimate glory and our ultimate good, to joyfully do his will. When God gave the law, how did it begin? If we just use the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have nothing in the affections of your heart that are preeminent above me. You shall not take my Lord's, the Lord's God's name in vain. Why? Because it is holy. Because he is holy. It shall be treated with reverence. You now shall make an image, an idol of anything in the likeness of creation as representing God. Why? Because he is holy. He is transcendent. He is distinct from his creation. He is not a part of his creation and is to be honored and glorified as such. And so it begins the giving of the law with an understanding of God as creator and the right to be honored and the right to be worshipped and to have lawlessness, to say that law is invalid in my heart is an affront to our creator. It is rebellion. Now, the nature and guilt of sin cannot be understood, however, by looking merely then at the evil of particular acts. Sin cannot, in its character, be understood merely by looking at the act itself. So, to misunderstand this would be to say, what's the big deal? It was only a little sin. I only stole a little thing. It was only a little slip-up. How in the world? Think about this. Well, we'll come back to this. Sin can't be understood in its true nature merely by comparing ourselves with other people. I mean, how many times? Everybody in this room that witnesses knowing that's the issue, right? You're a sin. Why? I haven't done I'm a basically a good person. That's the rich young ruler who was even within Judaism accomplished and said, well, I've done all of those things since my youth. I've not sinned. I'm not a great sinner. I, I can't comprehend a savior of Israel that would need to die. I can only comprehend the Savior who would help me to do better and be a better version of me. It sounds like the gospel today. But sin can't be understood in that way. We can't understand the nature and the character of sin by looking at particular acts, whether large or small, and we can't understand the nature of sin merely by comparing it to others as if sin were just on some kind of human scale or human grade. Sin is only understood when it's understood as the one who is offended, and that is the lawgiver, God, our creator. Sin is only understood in its true nature when we understand who God is and who is in whose image we are made. That's how sin is understood. And so a fundamental reason, again, that the church has a small view of sin is that we, by and large, as a church, have a very small view of God. The universe and God's glory has become more about us than it has about him. And if it's more about us, then sin simply isn't going to have its evil character that Scripture gives to it. You wonder if most people leave many of the sermons thinking about how great God is or how important we are to him. One said this, J.I. Packer, and we're going to move on because I'm going to go quickly. He said this, uh, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. And one commented about that. God suffers from being weightless, not merely in the culture at large, but in the church. 
But sin, if it's to be rightly understood, has to be understood in its very nature as rebellion against God, as lawlessness that says, essentially, I refuse to submit to your rule. I will live my own way. Sin is secondly in its character in, in internal. Internal. Sin is an internal disposition and principle within the very spiritual constitution of humanity. It's internal. We as nations and societies have laws, and if you break them, they have consequences, right? That's how you go to jail. That's how you pay fines. Uh, There's a law that is written on paper. If you transgress that law, if you step over it, you fail to live and conduct yourself in, in light of that law, then your actions will bring about a certain consequence. We understand what a law is. These laws and the laws of a nation, however, are necessarily limited to our actions. They're necessarily limited to the things that we do. All human laws are. They cannot go further than that. So sin is not less than a transgression when we think of being lawlessness. It's not less than doing something opposite of what God says that we should do in our actions, but it's so much more than that. The law goes much deeper than our mere actions. It reveals and commands us to be conformed in our entire person, our entire thoughts, our entire motives, our entire desires to that command. And now we begin to even see the character of sin a bit more fully. It's not merely what we do. It is rebellion that begins from within our very person, within our very self. What is the heart? It begins in the heart. Well, here's one definition of the heart. The heart is commonly associated with emotions, feelings, or some type of fondness or affinity. In truth, the heart represents the whole person, who we really are. If anything clearly emerges from a careful study of what Scripture says about humanity, it is that the word heart is the most significant term for understanding the person. That is who we are. Who we are in our heart is who we are, and sin resides in the heart. So sin is a part, it's this... It's this part of our spiritual makeup, our humanity, that lives in contradiction to God's holiness. Let me just give you two examples. Matthew 5, 28. Whoever looks on a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's been disobedience to God's law because the heart has not conformed itself to the moral purity of the holy covenant of marriage and has rendered itself Guilty, and that person guilty. Jesus said this in exposing the error of the externalism and legalism of his day. He says this. He said, listen to me and understand, all of you. There is nothing outside the man which can defile the man if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then he goes on with these well-known words, but let's listen to them again. That which in verse 20 proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For within, from within, out of the heart of men proceed what? Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In other words, the, pro- the problem is eternal. Internal, excuse me. Internal. It's it's something inside of the human that, that lives and thinks and feels and acts in contradiction to God. Now consider this. There is nothing external to us that can make us sin. 
Nothing external to us that can make us sin, ever, ever. There wasn't for Adam and Eve either. Satan provided temptation. He didn't make them sin. He didn't hold them down to eat the apple. That came from them. They are totally responsible, Adam and Eve. Even temptation only has its power because of what is within us that is contrary to holiness. Sin arises out of us. It is the expression of what is in us. Satan's only power or influence over us is in proportion to the unmortified sin in us. That's why one of the most wonderful expressions about the sinlessness of Christ, I find, is in the Gospels, where it says the, the, the God of this world, the ruler of this world is coming, and he says, he has nothing in me. Why? Because he was perfectly holy. He was without sin. He was pure. He had nothing in him that was contrary to the will of God that Satan could get a hold of and use and cause him to fall. Nothing. Perfectly pure and perfect humanity. We, however, are not that. And so we sin. And Christians even sin because of unmortified sin in us. Unbelievers, that's all they can do. So sin is rebellion against God. Sin is internal. It begins with the very constitution. It's something that resides in us. It is comprehensive. And again, I'll go quick here. It's comprehensive when we think of sin. Sin affects the whole person. You're, well, particularly this group, is familiar with the total depravity. Sometimes it's called radical depravity. Just a reminder to some of us, that doesn't mean that each person is as bad as they possibly can be. We are so thankful for common grace that God restrains sin in a variety of ways, certainly through the church, through the family and the conscience. There's a variety of ways in which he constrains sin. We're not as wicked as we can be. What it is to say, to say totally depraved or to say that sin is comprehensive is to say merely that it affects every aspect of our humanity, our whole constitution. Our mind, our thoughts, our reasoning, even our rational ability to be rational. It affects our affections, our emotions, our desires. It affects our will, our actions, the things that we do, which are always the fruit of our deepest desires when we sin. So let me just, to state this clearly, turn to one passage, Romans chapter 3. He says comprehensively at the beginning that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's just a comprehensive statement about the entire person. If you'll remember back in Genesis chapter 8 verse 21, after the flood, God said this, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. It affects our minds and our thoughts. In verse 11 of Romans 3, there is none who understands. There's none who has the ability to spiritually comprehend, to adore, to delight in a right understanding of God. Genesis 6, 5, in God's indictment of why he's going to destroy the whole world with the flood, he says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth. And again, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's as, that's as pervasive and deep as you can get. Not merely what the person does, but what they thought, not merely what a person thinks, but even why they thought the thought they thought, what the goal there was. That should help us in our confession of sin, just as a little footnote, that we don't confess sin superficially, 
When we confess our sin and we deal with the Lord, we go as deep as our conscience allows us to go. That's where we begin to deal honestly before the Lord. When we confess sin to one another, by the way, we should also be thorough. But here, the point is, is that sin reaches down to the very depths of who we are. We can't get any deeper than that. It affects our affections and desires. Verse 11 and 18 of Romans 3, there is none who seeks for God. Why? Because there's no desire for God as he is. That doesn't say there's no desire for religion. It says there's no desire for God as he is, revealed in Scripture and creation and ultimately in Christ. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That speaks of the internal constitution of man. That means within the affections and the desires and the emotional life of man outside of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, there is no fear of God. There is nothing in us that causes us to want to reverence him and to give him honor with our lives. There is nothing in us that fears sinning and offending him. That's the constitution of man. The affections and desires are completely dead to God's glory and his holiness. It affects our wills and our actions. Again, in Romans 3, verse 12, all have turned aside, together they have become useless. They've turned aside from God's ways to walk in our own ways. He says, in verses 14 through 17, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and miseries are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Well, we could illustrate that with all of humanity. That that is what characterizes men. In Genesis 6.12, he says this, God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So sin is comprehensive in that it affects the whole person. And its descriptions in scripture are holistic. Listen to just some of the ways that God describes sin and the condition of man. As a child of Adam, dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus himself said, let the dead bury their own dead. What does he mean? Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me and know life. He describes this as being darkened. You walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, Paul said in Ephesians 4, in the futility, the emptiness, the nothingness, the vanity, the silliness of their own mind, darkened in their understanding darkened in their understanding. He describes this as being deaf spiritually, having ears, he says, Jesus repeatedly, do you not hear? Hardened in our heart. Paul says again in Ephesians 4, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. A heart that is hard, a heart that is callous, easily gives over to a heart that is greedy in its desire to voraciously satisfy every desire that would come to the mind. We're slaves in bondage. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. John chapter 8. In speaking of false teachers, he says they are slaves of corruption in 2 Peter 2. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. We are blind, having eyes, Jesus would say, do you not see? That's the description of man. Blind, dead, darkened, futile, hardened, enslaved, deaf, corrupt in the intents of the thought not doing good, unrighteous, 
full of violence and cursing and bitterness. That is what resides in the heart of man by nature. We should not be so shocked at the wickedness that we see in the world. We should be amazed it's not more so. We should not be shocked at times at the wickedness we see in ourselves because guess what? We were born with that same nature. Even a Christian has the old man, the principle of sin remaining in them that their whole life is spent trying to kill and trying to put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin is also universal. That's its comprehensiveness. It's universal. And this, of course, overlaps some. This is another way to say it's hereditary. In other words, it's the condition of every descendant of Adam that inherits conception. Psalm 51, we remember he, David said, In sin my mother conceived me. It means at the very beginning of life, which we would hold to be at conception, there was sin was a part of that human being, of his identity, of his nature. It's the theological reality or one of the theological realities behind the sign of circumcision. Behind the sign of circumcision. Why did he give to his covenant people whom he had redeemed from the nations the sign of circumcision? Well, certainly to be a sign of his covenant with them. Israel wasn't the only one who did circumcisions. Egyptians and other ancient Near East cultures did. But it was unique to them in the way they did it at birth. And it was unique to them as a sign of their covenant. But circumcision, what was its point? uh, Besides being a sign, Calvin concisely noted this and, and pulled this out well, and I quote, It is probable that the Lord commanded circumcision for two reasons. First, to show that whatever is born of man is polluted. At the very beginning of life, a seed that passes down the next generation, that there is pollution. And number two, that salvation would proceed from the blessed seed of Abraham. That's the covenant aspect and the sign. Regarding the man's pollution at the very point of procreation, one noted this, that even Israel were, quote, merely physical seed of Abraham were a part of the wicked seed of the serpent. In other words, by nature, unconverted, they were just as much a part of the seed of the serpent as the nations who didn't have the sign. That's why Jesus told the leaders that you're of your father the devil. You want to murder me. He was a murderer from the beginning. This is then the doctrine of original sin, which refers not merely to Adam's first sin, like the first sin that happened, but original sin theologically refers to the consequence of that sin. It refers to the reality that because of that, a consequence of that sin, that everyone comes into the world, that life begins with that original corruption, with corruption at the very point of life. So it refers to the fact that at the very point of life for all humanity, sin corrupts our nature. That's why Scripture talks about a person being either in Adam or in Christ. If we are in Adam, then we are a spiritual descendant of Adam with all of the corruption and the pollution and everything else that Adam brought into the world. If we are in Christ, then we are of a different spiritual nature. We share union with Christ so Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So there's no one in this point that it is universal, the point being no one who escapes the corruption of nature that was passed down from Adam to his offspring except for Christ. That's the part of the theological reason for the incarnation. It was a seed planted in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit who overshadowed her. 
It was not a human father. It was his divine father who created the holy things that were in the womb of Mary in the Gospel of Luke. The point is, outside of that, nobody escapes the reality of being born into this corruption. Nobody. Again, fourth, it's always present then, or fifth, whatever E is. It's fifth, I think. This is simply to say this, that there's no place on the planet Earth where sin is not present because we and every person carry it within us. Sin is with us when we sleep. Sin is with us when we wake up. Sin is with us when we go to the grocery store, when we drive, in every conversation, in every relationship, in every circumstance that we find ourselves. Sin is always present. Paul said it this way in Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is within my flesh. In other words, I cannot get away from the reality of sin. The principle of sin is always with me. I carry it with me everywhere I go. Every interaction, every thought, everything comes if I'm present with the presence of sin as a possibility as well. It is inescapable. It is universal. It's comprehensive. It's internal. It's rebellion against God. It's inescapable. Although this connects with the idea of sin's universal presence, by this point I want to make this distinction, that we can do nothing about our sin by nature. It's inescapable. We can't run away from it. We can't go to the darkest room. We can't go to the farthest country. We can't retreat far enough into ourselves that somehow we can escape sin because wherever we go, we're going to find it present. That's the idea. Sin is there. We cannot eliminate it. We cannot escape its presence, its power, its penalty. None of it. We can do nothing of ourselves to get from out from under. Humanity can do nothing to get from out from under its condemnation. There's a, there's a bright part coming, but this is a reality that we have to understand first. Paul said this, while they are saying peace, peace, Peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains in a woman with child, and they will not escape. They will not escape the judgment of sin because they cannot escape their own sin and to get out from under it. Hebrews 12, 25, we read this last week, says this, just a couple of passages. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven? There is no escape from sin and the consequences it brings from humanity. You can't run. A person cannot hide. You cannot get away from it. Let me add just a couple of more thinking about sin. Sin is attractive deception. It's attractive deception. That's a pretty significant one. Sin, with all of its horror, with all of its destruction, is attractive. One said this, The serpent told Adam and Eve that their eyes would be opened when they ate the fruit. And indeed they were. Only they did not see that they, what they thought they would see. And so it is with temptation. It presents as good something that is actually evil. So it is, in fact, with evil in general. It has the appearance of good. A lie would not work unless it contained a great deal of truth. Traditional rat poison seduced its prey by being 96% good cornmeal and only about 4% arsenic. Sin is attractive. Sin is pleasurable. Sin has something that satisfies our flesh. 
Sin has a pull in us because we want what it offers. People don't sin because it's unattractive, because it comes in all of its full colors, but it presents itself as something other than what it is. So it was when Eve listened to the logic of Satan as the lens or the worldview shift through which she now viewed the tree. At one point, that was a tree to stay away from because God had said to stay away from it in delight. Satan shifted her thinking, her worldview. Now she's looking at that tree quite differently. And why does Scripture describe internally what was going on inside of Eve? And see if you can't see yourself here when we sin. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate and then the eyes of both of them were opened and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Guess what? They got exactly what was promised to them. Their eyes were opened. She got exactly what she anticipated, a good piece of fruit in that moment. What they did not understand and what they fell for was the consequences that that would bring. And that moves us then into the second part. What are the consequences of sin? That's the character of sin, generally. What are the consequences of sin? Well, the true nature of sin is actually seen in its consequences. What it brings into creation What is it actually produced in God's perfect and holy universe when he brought it into existence? Well, let me give you a few. Again, just quickly. Sin brought a creation that was designed to have an output that is absolutely incredible and amazing. The, the flourishing and the opportunities for delight and discovery and for creating and for making and building and producing, the, the capacity of the world is, is unfathomable. We can just see some of that even now under the fall. But sin took all of this good and this glory and this potential of creation and subjected it to futility. That's where Solomon lives, isn't it? That's what Solomon is wrestling with. There's all of this stuff. There's all of these pleasures. I'm going to chase them all. There's all of this learning. I'm going to seek it all. There's all of this opportunity to create. I'm going to do it all. And at the end, I find that it's nothing. There's money to be had. I'm going to get as much as I can. But it's going to leave me as empty as when I began even more. There's all kinds of things of creation that were meant to be good, but in fact, because of sin, it took the entire universe that God brought into existence at the end of which he says it is very good and it made it futile. And so that's what Paul says, again, just because we've looked at this before, but the creation was subject to futility, not willingness, willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The creation itself longs to be set free from its corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But that's a time to come. That's not where it is now. So all of creation is futile. It brought a moral evil into the realm of humanity. A moral evil. It brought a natural evil, and that's usually a way, again, to think of it, how theologians talk about it. There's a natural evil, and that is the things that come as a part of just sin 
bringing its corruption on creation. So that's earthquakes, volcanoes, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, and floods, and you go down the list. But there's a moral evil that is much more sinister and grave that it brought into the world, and that is the evil that comes as a decision of wickedness and rebellion in the heart of man. There's a moral evil. One statistic I ran across this week uh, gave this. National Geographic noted in 2006, listen to this, that over 90,829,000 people have died from genocide and mass murders in the 20th century, including World War I and World War II. Over nine, almost 91 million people from moral evil, not accidents, not natural evil, from men killing men. Another noted that between 1960 and 1990, over 4,200 philosophical and theological writings have been published to address the evil, the issue of evil and God in the world. Why? Because it's perplexing. Man's trying to figure this thing out. How could we do that? Think about this, the wrath of God. It brought destruction of the world, a world that was designed to reflect his glory, his eternal attributes, his divine nature, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, his faithfulness, and so forth. It brought it to ruin and futility and to destruction. Genesis 6, 6 through 8. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth. He grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. 2 Peter 3, 7. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Revelation 19.15, speaking of Christ's return, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, and these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Matthew 25, speaking of the Lord's return, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. We cannot minimize as a church the reality of sin. This is what Christ, the Son of God, came to redeem. All of the above, actually, in terms of the consequences mentioned, are subsumed under the penalty that was threatened to Adam and Eve, namely death. Sin brought, if we could boil all that together, death into the world. Death is what was promised as a result of sin. One said this in Scripture, I quote, Death has a threefold meaning, being a judicial, a spiritual, and a physical reality. Each evidence is sin in a different manner. The essential quality of death is separation from God, which renders life meaningless, wretched, and miserable. End quote. So there's three aspects to death that I'll remind us of. When God promised that in the day you eat of this, you will die, and that death entered into the world through Adam, through one man, as Paul says in Romans 5, and death spread to all men for all of sin. What is this death? The first and most immediate consequence was a death within man, inside. It was a spiritual death. The constitution, that internal part of man that freely related and joyfully related to God in happiness and contentment, a delight to do his will and the experience of all of the joys that he made for us. Something died. 
And that relationship was broken. And so they were naked and they were not ashamed. Immediately turns into they covered their loins and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord when he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day. Why? Because sin had entered into the world. Something within them died. Something within them was destroyed. Paul refers to it in this way, spiritual death. And you were formerly walked in the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Everything that was constituted of man's nature as being in the image of God was not turned to God's worship, to God's delight, but turned to selfishness, pursuit, and a rejection of God. And we're seeing that in its fullness now, and this is a whole other message, but in the fruit of the sexual revelation, isn't it amazing that in Romans 1, or sexual revolution, in Romans 1, when he says they refused to worship God and they worshiped rather the creation, what is the very first expression of that as being given over? Women exchanged the function, the natural function, for that which is unnatural. Men did the same. We've gone beyond that with transgenderism. But the point is, is that something in man died spiritually. Secondly, there was physical death, which could include, in the broadest sense, everything related to disease, physical suffering, and the mark of the demise of the body that ends ultimately in a complete shutdown and death, where everything just stops working. It shuts down. It includes all the sorrow and all the sadness of loss. All of us have lost those we've loved. Death includes that. We don't have them with us anymore. They're gone. There's a sorrow. In one sense, it includes all the futility and meaningless, too, of worldly accomplishments. That's Solomon. It doesn't matter. The wise and the foolish, the rich and the poor, they all go to the same place, the grave. Physical death was introduced into the world, mirroring the sentiment of in Ecclesiastes, just as a reminder, in Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, all go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. This reflects Genesis 5. We know the account there. It's a genealogy. And he died, 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 and on it goes. Hebrews nine twenty seven. it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Sin was severe enough in death that God says there has to be a limit to man's life, a time when he expires and he leaves this world. And it is eternal. The horror of which is not only separation from God, as if that were just something that could be left on its own, but it's separation from God with all that it implies. It is an eternal sense of loss, guilt, suffering, and hopelessness of ever having relief of the accusing conscience eternally bearing on the sinner and producing in them the anxious guilt of their culpability. Forever. An accusing conscience. Now let me tell you, if we don't understand the holiness of God and the eternal nature of God, and we don't understand that sin is rebellion against this God, that's not going to make sense. And when we see evil in the world, what is going to be the natural reflex of the heart? And this is what it is for many people, to blame God, to question God, to impugn God. But if we understand sin, that isn't our first reaction. It doesn't mean we understand it. It just means we understand that God is to be trusted and glorified in whatever he brings into this world. If God were to make a creation or allow anything that didn't ultimately promote his glory, he would cease to be God. 
he would cease to be the ruler of the universe who created everything for his glory. And so we have to understand that sin is a threat to that glory, and yet even by that, he will be glorified. Let me give one other passage, and then we're going to move on to the happy news. Revelation chapter 20, you're familiar with this, let me read it. This is the end of this creation. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. No place was found for them and I saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, if there's anyone here who is outside of Christ, that is the word for you if you remain in that condition. God doesn't tell us that merely to give us information. He tells us that so that we would consider the result of our lives and turn to Christ and to flee to him. But that is the reality of sin. That is the reality, that is the worldview of the Christian that we look at this world and we go, that's the end of it. It's gonna be destroyed by fire and everyone who shakes their fist at God will be thrown into the lake of fire. Let's note the conquest of sin, the character of sin then, the consequence of sin. We're having to go quickly, but let's get here. The conquest of sin. This is what Christ came to redeem. This is why Christ had to come. Because understand that if God did not determine before the foundation of the world to choose out of a fallen world a people for himself to redeem in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be the consequence, so that would be the end of all of us. That is everybody who is outside of the Christ. Remember, one dies either in Adam, fallen, or in Christ, redeemed that's it that's it you're either in adam or you're in christ christ came to bring us salvation christ has defeated the work of satan he has provided for us a victory over sin and his conquest is complete listen to this in first john chapter 3 you know that he appeared that is christ in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, the one who, the, for the devil is sin from the beginning. But listen, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. He destroyed it. As devastating as sin is, Christ came to be the hero of the story and to destroy the works of the devil so that that would not be the final word in God's creation and to God's image bearers. So what was corrupted and is corrupted by our sin, rendering us guilty and helpless, is redeemed and restored in Christ. Listen to the way one person put it. It's a little bit extended, but I think it might even be up there. He put it this way. Most heroes overcome the crisis of their story by means of conventional power. I was just talking to one of my daughters driving into school the other day about heroes and how that reflects the, the gospel, and this captures it. They generally defeat, the heroes, generally defeat the villain or evil by summoning great determination or brute force. But Christ is not 
a conventional hero, and the cross is not a conventional weapon. We do not naturally associate a hero's victory with his death. If the hero of a story dies, this is usually tragic. The cross is inescapably tragic, an inescapably tragic symbol. It bespeaks shame and defeat, not victory. Yet, surprisingly, in the cross, Jesus defeats evil. Jesus defeats death by dying. He crushes evil by laying it on himself and then shows it to be powerless by rising from the dead. And he becomes our hero by being treated as a villain. Weakness is power. This subversive storyline defies all human expectations and is repeated nowhere other than in the testimony of Scripture, by the way. It appears foolish to the natural man, 1 Corinthians 1.18, and thus proves that the narrative of biblical redemption hails exclusively from a divine source. Man does not come up with the gospel. Man comes up with man saving himself. Even if it's by divine enablement, it's man saving himself. God, the revelation of a revealer of scripture and the revealer of Christ and revealed in Christ says, no, if salvation is going to come. I've got to do it. But the whole testimony of scripture is to say this. He did it. He did it in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the center of all of Scripture is God's unfolding of his glory in the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, of his defeat of evil, so the salvation of his people to enjoy and delight in his everlasting glory forever. The plot line of Scripture is given at its very beginning, the very beginning of creation's ruin, spoken by God to man's arch enemy when he said, he will crush you on the head, though you will bruise him on the heel. That's Scripture's plot line. That's the theme that's what First John said. He will destroy the works of the devil. And he did. In Christ, there is a savior. There is forgiveness. In Christ, there is a victor. And the conquest, what did he con uh, provide conquest for? Again, I'll have to mention these just quickly. Just as reminders. It means that sin's penalty is no longer a threat for those who trust in Christ. That's propitiation. It means that he absorbed in himself the wrath of God that it might be averted from us because it was placed on him. That he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Listen to this. In the Old Testament, but so clear. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we are healed. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, that is his experience, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and he interceded for the trans transgressors or more succinctly Paul in Galatians 3 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law which is because of our lawlessness our rebellion our enmity he's redeemed us from it how did he redeem us from it by becoming a curse for us for it is written curses everyone who hangs on the tree he didn't redeem it for us us from it by being a moral example by showing us what it means to be completely consecrated to God he came for us by bearing a legal, judicial guilt and condemnation on the cross from an infinitely holy God for our rebellion, for our sin, for our rejection, for our lust, for our disobedience, for our lawlessness. 
He bore the curse of the law for us in our place, in our stead, to show his divine glory. He put himself on the cross, as Hebrews said, by the, of his own will he offered himself up. On the cross, knowing exactly what he was doing when he said, Father, if there's any other way this could pass from me, let it pass. There wasn't. And by his own will, he says, then I'm moving forward in obedience to my Father for his glory, for my glory, and for the salvation of the people he has given to me. I am going to bear their iniquity. The curse of their disobedience, their sin is going to fall on me and I will take it all, drink it down to the dregs so that you could go free forever. So that in your rebellion, you might be brought into the joys of everlasting salvation. That in your sin and disobedience, through my obedience, you might be brought to enjoy the full fruits of my righteousness and my holiness, and my glory. He, con- he provided victory over sin's penalty. He provided victory over sin's power, the conquest of sin's power over the whole person. That means that those in Christ no longer have a mind enslaved to sin, but a mind that can be renewed by the truth of God, Ephesians 4. That can be transformed, not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we can perceive truth and the word that was once a closed book to us all of a sudden becomes a revelation of the glory of God and we behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That means sin has lost its power over the affections and we who could not love God, we who could not please him, all of a sudden can love him with our affections and please him because of our faith in Christ. As we love not the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We can love him and keep his commandments, something you can't do outside of Christ. Sin has lost its power then over the will. Sin shall not reign in you, that you should obey its lust, Romans 6, because we have more powerfully in us the spirit of God who enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and yield to the Father. That's the whole life journey for a Christian. So all of sin is destroyed, that destroyed sin that brought destruction to humanity in Christ, all is restored. And he says in 1 John, other places, but I'm closest there. He says in 1 John chapter 3, these glorious words, listen, we are children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know this. We know this. What do we know? We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is will be conformed to the body of his glory and will be freed forever from sin's presence. And that's what we long for. If you're a believer here, what is your greatest battle is every day you're battling your sin. There's joys, there's the delights of forgiveness, there's the the pleasant things that God brings us in this world. There's the delight of marriage and the delight of children and the delight of a work well done that we're satisfied with. There's the delights of food. There's all kinds of delights in this world that we give thanks to God for. There's things we enjoy in his creation that we praise him for. But let me tell you, if you are a believer, you understand that you, with all of those delights, know that none of those compare to what will be when we're with him free from the presence of sin and in the presence of his glory. We want to be freed from our sin. This isn't fatalistic, but I think that I have to say this, you agree with me that you're like, Lord, most days take me today. I mean, I want to be faithful today, but I am just so ready to be done with myself and to worship you 
I'm tired of my sin, and one day that is, and that's the glorious promise that we as Christians hold to, that as with all of creation, we will be set free into the glory of the sons of God. And so we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, for in hope we have been saved. Not to be a, make this a better world, though we should try to do that as much as we can, but to wait for the world to come, the world that's promised to us. The world of Christ's glory is the effulgence that surrounds us. We hope for what we do not see, but for what God has promised. And that's why Scripture ends with a word of hope. All tears, sadness, all of that's a part of this world. Frustration, repentance, guilt, discipline, failure, regret, death. That's a part of this world. We all experience it to some degrees at different times or another. But here's the promise. That's not the world we were saved to. That's not the kingdom of which we're true citizens. We're in enemy territory right now. Our future is this. I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among us, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. That restored fellowship where Adam and Eve hid because of sin, sin is removed, and we run to the presence of God. We delight in the presence of God. We will never be removed from the presence of God in an intimacy and fellowship and nearness that our hearts can only in their wildest dreams imagine. And he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Put yourself in there. He'll wipe away every tear from your eyes if you're in him. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be any crying or pain. Why? Because the first things have passed away. The creation that was fallen will be recreated and made new. And we who have been made new in Christ will be living on it forever in him. That's our hope. That's what makes us persevere. That's what helps us to carry on. We should meditate much on this. It's what helps us battle sin it's what helps us not get discouraged. It's what helps us when we fail again for the 5,000th time in the same thing to know, but this isn't the end of the story. My redemption is the end of the story. And one day I will never fail my Christ. One day I will never disobey him. But until that day, we battle on and we keep going. May God encourage our hearts with this. If you are outside of Christ, then you would only find yourself in points one and two. But the difference between points one and two and the third, the conquest in Christ, is your willingness to give your life to him, to trust him, to acknowledge what he has said is true, and to say, I no longer want to live in the power of my sin, but to know the glory of Christ, to taste redemption, to have forgiveness, to have a hope where there is none, to have forgiveness where my conscience accuses me, to have certainty where I live in doubt, that's available. Jesus said, and then this all end, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and I'm humble in heart. And if you do so, you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these tremendous words. Lord, we must grapple with sin. Help us not to be entertained by it. Help us not to be seduced by an attractiveness which hides 
a grotesque moral evil. Help us to be more attracted to you, O Christ, in your word. Help us not to be drawn by those things that are designed by the world for one purpose and by the God of this world to appeal to our flesh and to appeal to that which is in us that is contrary to holiness and righteousness and truth, but help us to, by discipline, by your prompting Holy Spirit, to form in us affections that are determined to be satisfied only in fellowship with you, to walk in the light as you yourself are in the light. And when we fail, and even we who know you surely do fail and will fail, help us to quickly run back to the fountain of grace. Help us to quickly run back to our Savior, to find refuge in you, to find hope in you, to be restored to you, and to delight in the salvation that you have accomplished for us. And that is real. And Father, for those who are outside of your dear Son, I pray that they would not remain so, but come to you on bended knee, outstretched arms, yielded heart, to believe and to receive your magnificent grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.